Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 177 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas at Austin. It's Friday morning, August 21st, 2020. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, there are students here. There are students there in orientation. Not all of them, though. We've got a hybrid student body. The uh, a substantial chunk of them, I don't know what percentage, are remote. And then listeners might find this interesting. Our students have the option uh, for almost all classes, even if they are here in person, they can choose uh, in a particular class to be remote. Steve, I have a Friday morning class. How do you think that's going to turn out? <laughs> now, not only is it going to be remote, but I think you're going to have a lot of video mutes. <laughs> video video ones required unless you have special arrangement. But I do think it was important to emphasize that we require real-time, simultaneous attendance, not watching the video after the fact. Just like our podcast. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, we should broadcast this live. It would reveal, I think some people are under the mistaken impression that we do anything to produce this, um, <laughs> that we cut things, <laughs> we edit things. <laughs> I think so. This is what this is our 177th real episode plus the two fake ones that people don't know about. So, right, 100. I, I think we've had to actually fully stop like once, right? And I think that like we've edited out something yeah. one other time. I felt guilty where I felt like I've been too mean about somebody. But um, I feel like, listen, I, I could take it. Um, <laughs> it wasn't you. But I, but I mean, I feel like that's a, a that's either a pretty good track record or it just shows how lazy we are. I'll yeah. You know, I, so I think we've said it before, but there are these sort of bootleg, no one else has them. There's there's at least a couple that uh, were done for sort of special audiences. Um, there's there's one we did for a special person uh, as, a, as a brief mini episode. And then and, there's the original episode one. Right. Which I don't know if we've ever said this, but, the, you know, we didn't know what kind of music we were going to use. So the opening riff, we just I think I held my my phone up to the microphone and then played the opening uh, intro riff from from Greece. <laughs> Hello from Austin, and welcome uh, to the first that, episode of our podcast. But that was totally what we were going to do, and then we realized we were going to get sued. You know what, though? Sometimes I listen to other people's shows, and they seem to willy-nilly throw in the brief little segment like that, and I wonder if that's... I don't think everybody's going to get in the way. Yeah, fair enough. We were um uh, we were playing a, a video bedtime story for the girls a couple weeks ago, uh-huh. and the intro music came on, and I was in the other room. I was like, "Why are they listening to first Mondays?" Because <laughs> it was the exact same music. Well, that the the uh, you know the amazing Mike Duncan History of Rome, like one of the big mother of all podcasts, um, had I think the one of just the little acoustic guitar riffs off of uh, the original GarageBand app mm-hmm. from his iPad. And it you know just became sort of iconic with that show. It's probably used for all sorts of other things too. Uh, but we we have some unique music that we randomly found and bought the rights to use. <laughs> uh, one of we our- did it right. We, we did it the legal. We're legal. We're no. not good. We're not interesting, but we're legal. Our, our friend Dakota Rudisil at uh, Ohio State asked me just, I think, yesterday, was that actually me playing the intro? And I said, I felt that's within my reach. Like, I could do that, but not with any production quality. We don't have that kind of recording sound. Is, is that our episode title? This podcast is not a copyright violation? Well, it remains to be seen what we do the rest of the show. <laughs> or not yet a copyright violation? Well, what are we going to talk about? Uh, so there's, you know, a fair amount of stuff is going on. Um, we have this um, remarkable scoop from Katie Bo Williams about the letter Attorney General Barr um, sent to the British government with regard to the two Islamic State detainees in U.S. custody in Iraq. The Beatles. We the have Beatles. been talking about this story to the point. It's not quite Dovey Mattis level, but it's definitely been with us for a long time. Things, or theory. Things are happening. Things, things are, are happening. happening. Or maybe, or maybe not. We'll see. I actually think something's going to happen here. So we'll talk about the Beatles. This is an important development. Um, we've got. Uh, we should reprise uh, the lucid and hilarious discussion from Rational Security, where you and and all our friends were unpacking the DHS GAO legal opinion on DHS succession and vacancies. Because if there's any. Uh, sustaining member on this show. It's the Federal Vacancies Reform Act and all its uh, uh, departments and spinoffs. 
So we've got that. Um, what else have we got? Trumplandia is a little busy. We've got, <laughs> <laughs> we've got some Trumplandia stuff. Oh, my God. We have an Operation Goldenrod almost. We got a guy captured on a boat, and it's Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon. Did you know that the Postal Service has a Navy? Um, I think that the mashup of the Postal Service timeline uh, storyline with the Steve Bannon timeline storyline and then connecting it up with SDNY and vacancies reform stuff. Right. I mean, the, the, the Bar Berman fiasco, um, but also the Arrested Development meme, right? The, you know. The money's in the bananas. No, 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 no. It's even better than that, right? The, you know, they're from the Securities and Exchange Commission. They have boats? Oh, <laughs> Is it clear that the that the Postal Service security folks, um, the law enforcement branch yeah. of the Postal Service, because yeah. yeah, there is a there is that, um, obviously picking up another theme of ours. Is it clear they were using their boats? Did they have? No, no, no. no. I don't. Th- I don't actually think they have a navy. But uh, but it's just okay. the spec. It's just the visual of it. Oh, you know? it's so great! It's so uh, great. Okay, this podcast does not have a navy. Yes, the man of the people, Steve Bannon, has is under arrest. This podcast does not have a navy. Yeah, I like that. Remember that, please. So also we've got uh, Syvance Jr.'s uh, subpoena. The, the yeah, we have a new ruling from Judge – a 103-page ruling from Judge Marrero. Oh, man. I hope you read it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that. <laughs> what else have we got? Um, I think that might be enough. I have a couple of National Security Division updates, just quick hits on interesting cases, themes we've talked about before. Um, maybe we can say something about uh, the – speaking of voluminous – the uh, volume five of the SSCI the uh, mega uh, volume since it's a thousand plus pages. Um, and then perhaps a note on this DOD inspector general's report. Yep. Just to really, I, I, want to, I just want to say something really quickly about that. And also just really quickly about this interesting, but very short fifth circuit decision. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's super interesting. That about the, about uh, the exclusion of women from the selective service and why that's constitutional. Absolutely. Um, I have I have some thoughts about the the Fifth Circuit referring to itself as quote a strict stare decisis court unquote. I thought you might. Thought <laughs> you might. Um, well, let's start with uh, some core bread and butter for National Security Law podcast. Beatles, the Beatles. All right, so not going to tell the whole story. Here. Remind us who these guys are, Bobby. Right. So you have a group of let's emphasize this former British citizens, former, <laughs> formerly British, <laughs> the kind of like us. <laughs> Were we? Um, the These guys, the Brits stripped their citizenship, which overhangs this case in a way that I think really kind of colors it in a funny way. And I've never quite understood why the court process we're about to describe has unfolded as if they were British citizens or as if they were in British custody. But oh, well, anyways, these guys ended up joining the Islamic State. And, and let's be clear, there's no question they went over and joined the Islamic State and played a significant role that involved um, at a minimum, being involved in the custody of, of various Western captives and, and, and then at least alleged that they were more directly involved in horrific abuses and ultimately the murder and the death of, of hostages, in, including you know, you've got uh, James Foley, Kayla Mueller. It's, it's just awful, the, the events that they're connected to. Um, these guys ended up at first in SDF custody, and now they have for a long time now been in U.S. military detention, not at Guantanamo, not in the United States, somewhere in Iraq, presumably in a facility that is probably in the Kurdish region um, where there are various operating bases for the United States. Maybe they're in a Kurdish facility sort of on behalf of the United States, but but it doesn't seem contested that they are in our control. So. As far as I know, there's been no habeas litigation or other litigation, and no one's really talking about it in a sort of Guantanamo sort of way. Why? Because it's so clear the U.S. government is trying to get them to the United States to face uh, prosecution for murder and other charges, to face the death penalty, which turns out to be a problem. Because it's one thing if you just want a conviction on material support grounds uh, for becoming active members of the organization under its direction and control, et cetera. Um, that doesn't get you the death penalty. That doesn't necessarily get you life. And that doesn't give you life sentence either. Um, so they're trying to build out the stronger case for the involvement in these particular heinous acts. And for that, it seems what we've wanted are SIGINT evidence, perhaps, or other evidence that's in the hands 
of the British. And when the British and the British were prepared to give that to us until one of these men's mothers litigated, raising uh, the the classic argument that arises in all circumstances in which the United States needs something from a European country to facilitate what would be a capital punishment prosecution. There is always a firm line taken to the effect that uh, the information cannot be provided or the, the person, usually it's an extradition situation, the person can't be extradited unless the United States provides diplomatic assurances that there will not be a death penalty proceeding. It'll be for life in prison, not for the death penalty. And we, and we should say why, right? And this is because all of these countries are bound by the European Convention on Human Rights, which has been interpreted by the European Court of Human Rights to bar cooperation in this context with a capital proceeding. Exactly. So the only really, the wrinkles here had to do with the fact that no one's asking the British to extradite the guy. We are asking them to share as the, as the, the home minister is prepared to do. Uh, Mr. Patel is prepared to share this um, information. And in the court, the, 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 what is now the Supreme Court there um, is what well, I guess it used to be what the House of Lords that would be ruling. But so the the law lords um, in their capacity as the Supreme Court said, no, can't provide the information. And so there's been this sort of that happened in March. And for several months now, we've been wondering, so what's going to happen? Do they just you know, can they get other evidence? It seems clear that whatever else we've got on these guys, it's it's not enough to give the prosecutors confidence that they could get capital punishment. And so we learn uh, through the good offices of Katie Bowe that uh, Attorney General Barr has dispatched a letter uh, to the Brits saying that we will take the we're providing the diplomatic assurance. We will take the death penalty off the table. So this will be a this will be a prosecution for a life sentence uh, if the information is provided forthwith. But if it but, and, and by October 15th, right. So if it doesn't arrive by October 15th, this, it's is, not so that, this, this is the interesting part to me, right? Yeah, yeah. If it doesn't arrive by October 15th, then we are instead going to turn them over to the Iraqis who will prosecute them themselves. And that, my friends, will definitely result in a death penalty. I, I don't Well, maybe it wouldn't, but it, it's pretty likely. And it will not be the moats. Uh, how shall we put this, Steve? what rights respecting sort of procedurally robust sort of trial there. So uh, clearly putting, putting the Brits on what could be the horns of a dilemma. I think they're actually getting what they asked for. The, the further wrinkle is this, at least I think the Washington Post story, maybe it was a BBC story. One of the stories said there could be a hiccup and that there may still be pending elements of litigation that might preclude the inf- preclude uh, timely uh, cooperation. Now that strikes me as as you know deeply problematic, and surely they can make the wheels for this turn fast enough. Um, what well, do you- and I think that's why Bar did what he did. I, I will say I, I don't. I am not enamored of the idea of of holding out the sort of if you don't cooperate by this date, you know we're gonna we're gonna turn them loose on the Iraq or we're gonna turn the Iraqi courts on them. I. That, that doesn't sit very well with me. Like, you know, yeah, okay, we understand. You don't want us to execute them. We'll, we'll, we'll cooperate if you cooperate. But if you don't, not only, you know, we're, it's not, we're not going to do the dirty work. We're actually going to do worse, right? Like, I, I just, I don't know. I, I hear what you're saying. I, I feel differently in part, in primarily because almost, you know, we don't, we very rarely have transferred anyone back to the United States to face prosecution. Um, there's, I guess there's been instances involving U.S. citizens, but everybody who's from somewhere else, and let's make no mistake about this, the, the connection these guys have to the United States is simply their role in in, in horror, horrific abuses against Americans. Everyone else gets shipped off, either left to face the good graces of the SDF, or if they end up in Iraq, they end up in the Iraqi process. So these guys will be getting nothing worse. Listen, I, I, I hear that. I, I, think, I think my objection is both a rhetorical one and an objection to what is clearly the current state of the law, right? Which is that those transfers are perfectly legal. Um, you know, I, 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 for one, would prefer a more robust regime where one could object to a transfer to a foreign criminal justice system if there were sufficiently, you know, genuine concerns about the legitimacy of the process in those courts. But that's not the law today. Well, yeah. So, I mean, you're kind of raising the, the non-refoulement issue of, you, you know, you're not supposed to transfer somebody to the custody of another country if it's more likely than not that they'll be tortured or abused. Right. But see, but see Munaf. But, right. But you can't, you can't effectively litigate that in the United States, especially where there are diplomatic assurances on the table, as presumably there are. And here, so, 
Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the reality is, but I mean, this this gives the British the face saving they needed to cooperate, and so now I, I think I think I suspect you're right that they will. Um, yeah. Can I add two footnotes that have nothing to do with this case, but that sort of are tangentially relevant? Yeah. Um, so footnote number one um, is I don't know if you also saw Barr yesterday in a either I don't know if it was a speech or just a quote, um, but talking about how um, the Justice Department is going to appeal the First Circuit decision in the Sarnayev case. Oh um, no, I did not know that. I I'm not too surprised. Um, I'm a little surprised. It's just it to to redo the whole capital phase and to just kind of take the hit and do it again is is so costly. And if they think they yeah, might, it's, it's just it's it's odd. I mean, asking the Supreme Court to step into what really is a heavily fact bound, case specific, you know, unique sort of jury fairness case. Um, with this kind of baggage just seems like a reach for me. Like I just, you know, but wouldn't that, wouldn't that critique apply equally to the first circuit second guessing the district judge? I mean, if it's really so fact intensive, I, I don't think so because no, no, because I, I think, I think my point is about the, the first circuit. It's a mandatory appeal in a capital case, right? The Supreme court is discretionary review. That's supposed to be about, you know, issues of great importance to federal law. Like those are different standards for what you're doing. Oh, but, I, see, I see. You're not, you're not saying it's so much of the, uh, the, it's not so much that it's the fact review on appeal. It's that it's, it's the cert worthiness. It's the cert worthiness. Yeah, I think it's the you know it's the case of national moment. And of course, the court may demonstrate they actually see it your way and say it may be a case of national moment. But there's nothing legally interesting here. And, 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 there, and there's a pattern here, which is there, the the Trump administration has actually filed a, a whole slew of cert petitions in the last couple of weeks. Um, that don't necessarily strike me as cert-worthy cases. So I don't know if you saw a couple of days ago, they filed for cert in the Twitter case, the 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 uh, Trump uh, blocking people on Twitter case from the Second Circuit. Like that's not cert-worthy. I mean, I just I don't I I don't know. I that I don't know. I I think that there is an understandable element of of national interest in a case like Sarnayev. Obviously, the Twitter one. I mean, it touches on the president. Uh, you know, in a way that we, we might think is ridiculous, but it does touch on the president. But, but I don't see, but, but I disagree. So the, it touches on the president in the sense that the president's involved, right? I don't think it touches on the presidency because no one's ever used their Twitter. No other president has, has, you know, has previously or likely will in the future use their Twitter account the way he does. I mean, I oh, just, I, well, well, I will agree only with the part that no one will ever do it quite the way he does it. But I think what for scholars of the communicative aspects of the presidency, yeah. the defining looking at you, Kate Shaw, the defining feature of the presidency under Donald Trump has been Twitter. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. What, by the way, Twitter and, uh, introduced it South by Southwest, or, or yeah, I think of South by, wasn't it? I think so. Um, yeah. And just just to plug, Kate Shaw has written like a series of really interesting articles about presidential speech through these mediums that I, I just highly commend to folks. All right, That's cool. um, check it out. One last nerdy footnote, just because we we're talking about the British. Bobby, very important news yesterday. I don't know if you saw this. Yeah. Season four of The Crown has a release date. Oh, oh no, that's good. We're catching up. We're right now catching up in season three. We're a little far back. Um, I just saw the LBJ episode, which was absolutely <laughs> extremely awesome at the end. That was just really well done. Um, oh, LBJ. Um, anyway, so so uh, November fifteenth is the premiere of season four of The Crown, and I am I am here you for that. Season four. Me. Season four is when we meet Diana. Yeah, uh, that's gonna be that's gonna be so interesting. Well, it continues to deliver. Like so, I mean, we are living at a, a at a great time for uh, serialized, novelized television. Um, can I just do this? I'm sorry, just, I, this is going to be, I'm, I'm, I'm being overly self-indulgent here, but one more sort of, since you mentioned LBJ, um, I just, the, I, I, the excuse presented itself to mention my favorite LBJ story of all time, which I think I've said before on the podcast, but I just want to tell again. Um, right. We've also done 80 soundtracks before we're going to do that again. Also true. So Tuesday was, um, uh, the, I don't know, the 71st anniversary of Tom Clark's confirmation of the Supreme Court. Tom Clark, the only Texas law alum to ever serve on the Supreme Court, um, which I didn't even know except that the Supreme Court Historical Society, which, by the way, is a fun follow on Twitter, at SCH Society, um, was tweeting about uh, uh, Clark's appointment and about his unique relationship with his son, Ramsey Clark. And that gave me the excuse to tell my favorite LBJ story, because if any one story encapsulates LBJ in a nutshell, it's this one. So it's it's 1967. 
and LBJ really wants to put Thurgood Marshall on the Supreme Court. The only problem is there are no seats on the Supreme Court because no one, no one's retire him. So LBJ looks around, and he looks around, and he realizes that Ramsey Clark, who at that moment I think was um, a C, I don't know if he was number two or number three in DOJ, but he was high in DOJ. He says, what if I just nominate Ramsey Clark to be the attorney general? And okay, why would that matter? Well, because Ramsey Clark, as attorney general, would force Justice Tom Clark, right, to recuse from every single case in which the federal government was a party. It was like, you know, a third of the court's docket. Lo and behold, LBJ appoints Ramsey Clark. Tom Clark retires, right, to get out of the way for his son, freeing up a seat on the Supreme Court for LBJ to appoint Thurgood Marshall, the first black justice in the court's history. That's crazy. I did not know that story. It is just such, like, it is, it is like manipulative and baller and, you know, real politic and just like. (laughs) Which raises the question of the, who on the court currently is similarly in danger of being bumped out of their position uh, through the pressure and leverage of recusal by the appointment of a child? Um, Um, Any obvious uh, exposure there? Alito, Alito's son? is in the government somewhere? I don't know. I mean, you know, Scalia, before he died, I mean, right, uh, uh, Justice Scalia's son is the Secretary of Labor at the yeah, moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, all right. We've got more stuff to do. Uh, should we turn to uh, uh, vacancies, kerfuffleness? Yeah, let's, let's uh, will you lay out quickly sort of the, the gravamen of what, the, first of all, what what is the GAO doing producing legal opinions? What's the status of How this? How dare they? Yes. Now, well, it, it is it is worth, you know, I think a lot of people's reaction was like, there's been a ruling. There, there was a ruling from a, some court called the GAO. Um, from, so, the court of, from the court of courtliness. So we need to provide a little context for what it is and isn't when the GAO has a, has an opinion about how to interpret things. But then um, what exactly did they, what was their argument, regardless of what their authority was, what was their argument on the merits? And then what right, so, so the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, is actually technically part of the legislative branch, Um which is how it gets to do these things without just getting, you know, run by Trump cronies. Um, and it's, it's basically a sort of a, a nonpartisan audit body. Um, indeed, it used to be called the General Accounting Office before they changed the name of Government Accountability Office. Um, you know, clever like rebranding. Seabass rebranding effort by them. 100%. <laughs> um, I actually, I used to, when I first moved to D.C., I lived right across the street from the GAO. Uh, and one of my best friends from high school, I think, still works there. Um so GAO's job is basically to audit the government in general, um, but usually at the request and or direction of Congress. And in this case, um, a couple of different members of Congress, a co- I think it was uh, the House Homeland Security Committee. I, anyway, um, people who had the authority to ask the GAO to do this, asked GAO to look into um, whether Chad Wolf, the acting secretary of Homeland Security, had actually been lawfully appointed as such. And whether your friend and mine, Ken Cuccinelli, um, the senior officer performing the duties of the deputy secretary of Homeland Security, um, had also been lawfully appointed as such. Um, And in an opinion handed down, a a legal opinion, Bobby, not a court opinion, right? A a legal analysis. A legal analysis. Um, Opinion is is not probably as good as analysis to give people a sense of. A memorandum analyzing that legal question signed by the general counsel of GAO. Um, handed down last Friday, GAO says, nope. Um, and here's the problem. And Bobby, I, so Anne Joseph O'Connell from Stanford has been pointing this out since this happened last April. And like almost nobody listened. So kudos to Anne for, as usual, being way ahead of the ball here. Um, so folks might remember, I should go back and figure out which episode this was. We had a whole episode about the Kirsten Nielsen unresigning, resigning Michigas. Oh, yeah. Um, and the under and and how the Trump administration forgot that the undersecretary for managed anyway. So back in April 2019, when Kirsten Nielsen was unceremoniously dumped by Trump as the Secretary of Homeland Security, mind you, Bobby, the last time we had a Senate confirmed Secretary of Homeland Security, 500 days ago tomorrow. It's never been longer in American history. It's a. It is. As I've said before, there's no way to say what number of days is too many days, et cetera. That it's, it's 500 is too many. Well, it, it's clearly it's clearly inconsistent with the separation of powers, with the original understanding of the role of the Senate, with the text, the whole deal. You can't intentionally just not have nominees. 
Um, right. You kind of can. In and then apparently you can. Um, so Nielsen originally, so Trump sends a tweet on Sunday night, April 7th, 2019, where he says, uh, Kirsten Nielsen stepping down and I'm naming Kevin McAleenan, who was then, I think, Bobby, the commissioner of CBP um, as the acting secretary. Um, and of course, the, the small problem there was he couldn't do that because under the Homeland Security Act, Claire Grady, the undersecretary for management, would have automatically become the acting secretary. So to prevent all this from happening, Nielsen unresigns right. three hours after resigning. Fingers were um, crossed. My fingers were crossed. It doesn't count. Seriously. Um, so first she unresigns, and then they spend the next three days frantically rejiggering, or at least trying to rejigger the order of succession within the department. So first oh, yeah, they fire. Think, do we think the unresignation is actually lawfully effective? Is that, a, so, is that even a thing? I mean, Marty Lederman has been asking this. I, you know, Nielsen's letter says I'm resigning effective April seventh. Um, okay. If she had said, if she had said I was resigning effective immediately, right? Yeah. Um, I think that's I think a sufficient answer. That's a sufficient answer. Right. Because it was still April seventh when she unresigned. Right. Um. So on April eighth, they get rid of Grady, and on April 9th, um, Nielsen exercising authority everyone agrees she had under the Homeland Security Act. Um, purports to change the internal order of succession within the department so that it won't be your friend and mine and NSL podcast guest, Chris Krebs, right, who takes over as the acting secretary, but rather uh, McAleenan. So, and, so she- uh, and in that order, it definitely changed the succession, at least as to a particular circumstance. So here's the problem, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, friends and and friends and, and Yankees fans. Um, the problem with the order is she signed the wrong order. Well, like, did she? So, no, no, like they're not contesting that she signed. They're not saying she actually signed the right order. They're saying that it doesn't matter that she signed the wrong order. Right, so so she it. signed the wrong order. The order she signed was the order of succession in cases of catastrophe. Right, like in cases of like disaster and not like in all other cases. They didn't actually change the order of succession in a case where you resign just because. Yeah, incredibly turns out there's there's two different succession or now should there be I who knows. But yes. there is. There and, is. And so when she unresigned so that they could take yeah. it so that she could use her lingering lame duck authority to change the order of succession. She only changed it as to the catastrophic succession scenario and not the one that was actually in play there, unless you're going to indulge in some uh, all too plausible claims about how catastrophic this whole thing is. But setting that aside, the original sort of -of run-of-the-mill succession scenario was unchanged. That's right. Um, And so so, so, so what should have happened when she resigned the second time on April 10th is Chris Krebs, you know, uh, should have become the acting secretary. Chris. Poor Chris. Um, instead, right, Nielsen sends a memo to the entire department saying, you know, uh, Kevin Macklin is taking over and she swears him in as acting. Now, let me just say, why are you swearing in an acting? Like, what is the swearing in nonsense for an acting secretary? He's not the secretary, but okay, but I digress. Um, fast forward to last Friday. So GAO says, nope. Um, you signed the wrong order of succession and whatever you intended and whatever you told people doesn't matter because the thing you signed is crystal clear about when it applies and when it doesn't. Therefore, and here's the here's the here's how this connects up to Wolf and Cuccinelli. Therefore, McAleenan was not lawfully the acting secretary. And Wolf and Cuccinelli only have their jobs, Bobby, because McAleenan purported to change the order of succession again while he was nominally serving as the acting secretary. And so what GAO concludes is that McAleenan's new order of succession was invalid because he himself was not lawfully the acting secretary because Nielsen's signature was on the wrong piece of paper. So it was a daisy chain of illegitimacy. A hundred percent. That could be a show title. Um, <laughs> this whole, podcast, the whole podcast series is a daisy chain of illegitimacy. Um, Okay, so that's pretty bonkers. Uh, uh, no, it gets better. It gets better. Fire away. Oh, I, oh I'm doing the it gets better. So on Monday, uh, wait, I want to write down daisy chain of irresponsible, of, no, of illegitimacy. Right? Is that what you said? Yeah. Okay. Um, on Monday, um, Chad Mizell, 
Um, and let's be clear, Chad is the senior official performing the duties of the general counsel, because there isn't a general counsel of DHS. <laughs> the same issue. Sends a seven-page letter um, to GAO. Um, Bobby, I don't know if you've read this letter. Um, I have not. It is quite a letter. Um, so there's one legal argument and then a whole lot of innuendo. Um, so the legal argument is that it doesn't matter that Nielsen signed the wrong thing because it was clear in context what she meant. And therefore, her memo to the department explaining that McAleenan was going to succeed her and her swearing McAleenan in was de facto changing the order of succession the right way. Oh, is that how it works? Is that how it works? To which my response is, so if she had sworn me in as the acting secretary of Homeland Security, that would have been conclusive of the legality of that? So could we could we distinguish devil's advocate? Can we distinguish the case? I'm just going to try to rationalize this. Now. I'm going to try to rationalize it. No, I'm just want to. I want to. I want to expose as clear as I can where the flaws are. So they couldn't do it with you because you were not eligible. There's no claim of eligibility for you, even if even if she signed an order that named you. That would be inconsistent with the statute, right? I'm Whereas, looking at. Let me, let me look at the statute and see if it says. I think so, because I think the statute says, if I remember right, um, yep, the secretary may designate such other officers of the department in right, further right. order. Of and I'm right. not an officer of the department. Right. So, so, so the, the, the best we could do is to say, like, so she could have picked anybody and, and then signed the wrong order. So his claim is, look, this was Scrivener's error. She still appointed a proper person. You could tell from the context. It's more. It's not, it's not. It's not Scrivener's error. Her, um, uh, Mizell's point is the memo she sent to the department and the act of swearing Macleanen in were themselves um, designating uh, such other officers yeah. See, under one. To me, that's where it's just that I, the formalities matter, and these these are the formalities the matter. The actual the actual document that lists the order of succession actually matters, and if you haven't changed it, you haven't changed it, and you didn't change it. And all this other stuff doesn't override that. Okay. So then there's the rest of the letter. So the rest of the letter first spends a while yelling at GAO for issuing biased reports. Um, never mind that like GAO has a long history of actually bipartisan or nonpartisan, at least, scolding of everybody. Um, but then, and, and this is the, the this is where I think the hubris takes on another level. Um, Mizell goes after the staffer, not the right the the GAO opinion signed under the name of the general counsel of GAO. Mizell goes after the staffer who apparently was you know responsible for preparing parts of the memo on the ground that he only graduated from law school a few years ago, that he was insufficiently experienced, etc. <laughs> okay. I should say off the top, I am deeply allergic. Right to arguments that when you graduate from law school is some great um, uh, is is itself proof of your ability or lack of ability. Right, that like just because you've been out of law school for forty years doesn't mean you know your stuff. Just because you graduated yesterday doesn't mean you don't. Um, but of all the people in the world to be leveling that charge against anybody, I'm not sure that this guy who graduated from law school a year before. The GAO staffer he's criticizing. <laughs> and Bobby, and let me add, and whose wife, who is 32, was just nominated to the federal district court. Oh wow. Like I don't think yeah. I don't think you're the right person to be accusing anybody of inexperience based solely on when they graduated from law school. That's pretty funny. I mean, funny is one word for it. Yeah. Anyway, so <laughs> This is so. This is the DAO. This is the DHS GAO fight. Now, at this point, people might be saying, "Okay, but like, who cares?" Right? Wolf is still there. Cuccinelli is still there. So, it is true that the GAO opinion does not bind anybody formally. But Bobby, there are like four or five pending lawsuits that are challenging different DHS policies and programs, including the deployment of CBP officers in Portland, including the new DACA memo, where at least one of the grounds on which the, the actions are being challenged is that Wolf had no authority to do them because he wasn't lawfully appointed. So the question's already in court. And I think what the GAO opinion does is it provides a pretty firm leg for a judge who is, 
skeptical about these policies to stand on and saying, you know, I don't even have to reach if the policies are substantively unlawful because I can just say, you know, the guy who promulgated them wasn't lawfully there. So it functions as a roadmap to the merits argument such a judge might, I mean, presumably could have figured that out on their own, but. Uh... But like, if I'm a judge, you know, if, I, if I'm, if I'm just saying I'm the only person to see this, right. Versus here's, here's nonpartisan audit watchdog GAO reaching right. the same conclusion. Yep. The, uh, okay. So <laughs> I guess the thing about that, of course, is it'll take forever for the litigation to reach some point of conclusion. We've got an election coming up that, that it bears repeating ultimately is going to decide this in the most conclusive way, one way or the other. But, but if Trump wins, then this will really matter. If he loses, it won't matter so much. If he wins, it will. And maybe some court at some point is basically going to say, you, you know, this, this guy lacks statutory authority. Now we should note at that point, it won't be Krebs who then would be forced into uh, forced out of the cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency where we want him to be because he's been amazing there. Instead, it would be the FEMA head who is Gator. who is now Senate confirmed and uh, is ahead of and therefore jumped in front of because under the correct under the under the order that Nielsen did not change on April 10, 2019, the the senior Senate confirmed official in the agency right now is this is the FEMA director. Now, the difference is, right, Pete Gaynor was confirmed, Bobby, between right when all this went down last April. Right, and exactly. now. But that'll, um, that'll make that'll make Pete the one. But I just want to make one last point. Uh, which is so this is all fun and it's stupid and it's typical Trump and all that stuff. If I'm the White House, I actually might want to clean this up now rather than later, because let's play this out. I mean, Bobby, you're exactly right. This is now going to get slowed down and dragged out in court. But imagine a world in which um, we're fighting over this for the next you know, five months in court. And where sometime in January, the courts conclusively decide, January or later, courts say, yeah, no, Wolf wasn't lawfully appointed. Therefore, all these policies were unlawful, right? Um, it might no longer be the Trump administration in charge of DHS at that point. And so if I wanted to ensure that like the new DACA memo and all this other stuff, right, was on like firmer legal footing, or at least was less vulnerable to challenge, I'd want to be cleaning up this mess right now, Um and it's an interesting sort of question, like what's more important to the administration, you know, fighting over Wolf and Cuccinelli or putting the policies these guys are expounding um, on the firmest legal footing going forward. And I just, you know, yeah. it's, 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 not, it's an interesting inflection point. Well, I think that whether they were, I, I don't think they're going to do it. I don't think they're going to, I don't think that it's that organized, frankly, but also I think that if, if they're out at that point, They've got bigger problems. I will say this though, um, that, uh, oh shoot, lost it. I had some brilliant insight. It's gone now. Let's move on to the next one. Well, I was going to say, was speaking of speaking of bigger problems and vacancies, should we talk about um, um, uh, build the wall? Oh, <laughs> you mean a vacancy on a fancy boat off the Connecticut shore? Well, and a vacancy in the, in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Sovereign District of New York. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm not sure what there is for us to say other, other than marveling at the confluence of crazy <laughs> elements. in the. I mean, it, it's total, like, issue spotter madness. Right, so the U.S. Postal Service gets involved, sends the secret mail cops, uh, which is so great. I mean, you know, NCIS got a TV show. JAG got a TV show. I think, Hollywood, it is time for the USPS uh, crime procedural and the no, you know, law law and order law and order colon postal service or oh that could be or how about law and order colon rain or shine <laughs> <laughs> oh um, man so great what, what, hey, what, what, in, in, in oh, way, what is your favorite postal service song oh gosh uh such great heights oh no oh yeah wait a minute mr postman how could it be anything other no, 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 the no, the band, the Postal Service. I I don't even know the band, the Postal Service. Such great, you don't know such great heights. I don't. I don't think I do. I'll check it out while we're uh, okay. You Bobby, talk. I will cue this up. Give me a genre. What kind of music are we talking about here? Uh, early two thousands, like indie pop. Oh well, that explains it. Uh, early two thousands is changing diapers time, and that's all. That's all I know from that time period. Yeah, fair enough. Um. All right. So anyway, so so I don't I don't think there's much to say about Bannon. The only thing I want to say about the Bannon, I like it. It's a good start. All right, I'll stop it <laughs> before we get to. 
The only, the only thing I have to say about the Bam thing is I have two things to say. So the first is, you know, it was two months ago, I think yesterday, that we had that crazy Friday night, Saturday weekend drama over the effort to fire Jeff Berman oh, yeah. as the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District. Um, you know, I, I don't. We, we don't know that this is why they wanted to get Berman out of the way. But as we talked about then, there was never a sufficiently satisfying explanation for why Berman had to be sidelined pending the confirmation of Jay Clayton, right? That like why you had to get rid of the the court-appointed U.S. attorney even before the Senate had confirmed the successor since the Senate confirmation of the successor would have automatically gotten rid of him. Um, it certainly looks like this is one possible reason, right, why why Barr was trying to sort of sideline Ber- uh, Berman. That's kind of corrupt. Um, but the other piece of this is, I don't know if you saw that one of the four defendants in the indictment yesterday was a guy named Timothy Shea. Um, and it took like it took folks about ten minutes to figure out that this was not the same Timothy Shea who had been the sort of hastily appointed interim U.S. attorney in D.C. and who is now running the DEA. Um, yeah, just, that's unfortunate. That you know, well, the, my favorite that happens. DEA ends up putting out a statement yesterday. It's like this is not the same. Not here. I'm sure he's like, oh, great. Well, so, so this is my but so here's my question to you, Bobby. Can you think of a previous administration where we all would have immediately assumed that it was the same guy? I mean, like I just I feel like we are so. Record, I definitely forward. never thought it was the same guy. All right. Um, well, I, I did. I, I just want to say to connect it to the Berman deal. I think that it's very possible that there was something completely inappropriate going on vis-a-vis Giuliani. I don't think actually Bannon is in such good graces with this crowd that that, that possibly that level of shenanigans. Would be deployed for his benefit. Um, so I, I certainly Giuliani, agree. Maybe I agree. I agree that Bannon's not in good graces. However, if you are concerned that Bannon has um, various information that he might turn over as leverage if he were indicted, you might not care whether he's in your good graces or not. Anyway, except just, these guys have learned. They've learned that if the pardon prospect is out there, then they, you know, Omerta is the way to go. God, everything is so corrupt. And by the way, let me just say here now, and I think we've hinted this before, but let's say Biden wins, and that becomes clear at least by December or whenever it eventually becomes clear. We are going to be in for the craziest lame duck period since John Adams. It is going to be, it is going to be a rush to. Oh, those those eleven weeks are going to be insane. The the pardon inactivity, yep. the attempt to entrench things to get yep. get appointments rammed through. It is gonna be bonkers, and 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 and, and even better, Bobby. Um, January third is a Sunday next year. Hmm. Unpack that a little bit for me. Um, so Congress ends on January third, and Congress starts on January third. Um, what if Congress doesn't actually assemble till the fourth? What are you worried would happen in this interregnum? Recess appointments. <laughs> I'm laughing like Nick Weaver here. <laughs> oh, man. Yep. Oh, man oh, is right. All right. So um, you had some National Security Division updates you wanted to, to, to take us through, which no, I distracted just, you from? No, no, that's great. I just want to flag a couple of things. There was a, a couple of – there have been a, a raft of cases. National Security Division has been very busy. For a long time this show, we made a point of, of kind of touching base with that. I tend not to cover all the uh, ones that involve people doing things that violate sanctions vis-a-vis Iran because – uh, it, I don't know. They they come out a lot, and they don't strike me as terribly interesting. Although they are important in the, in the uh, grand scheme of things, there's a lot of that. You've got someone, a, a former soldier. We I think we talked about this case. This guy was obviously I think it needs a lot of help. He was he's described in the court documents as a satanist, the one who was uh, you know was involved in a bomb plot. That guy ended up getting 30 months, so I wanted to note that since we've talked about him before. And then you've got another instance in which um, the Chinese intelligence services had turned a former uh, U.S. intelligence service member, in this case a former CIA officer who had gone on then in in his post-CIA life to work for FBI. He was passing documents to the Chinese for cash, uh, so he's been charged, Um, just continues to be... uh, it's not exactly Moscow rules or Beirut rules or anything like that, but the the behind the scenes, in the shadows, wilderness of mares competition between U.S. and Chinese uh, services continues to be awfully hot and getting hotter. And I think I'll just leave it there. 
What about, um, did you want to, let's talk about the Fifth Circuit's ruling in the uh, the draft case. Uh, this is a reprise potentially, maybe still will be, of Rosker, um, the, the earlier Supreme Court decision holding that it was constitutional for the draft to be male only, notwithstanding the fact that gender distinctions can be examined under the Equal Protection Clause or, or so, the so, Clause, if you want to so, look so at So you and I both teach first-year common law, right? And Rostker is this really interesting inflection point in the court's equal protection jurisprudence. Um, so just uh, sh- make a long story short. So the Fifth Circuit um, last Thursday um, uh, basically issued a very, very short opinion reversing a district court. So a district court here in Texas had granted declaratory relief, Bobby, but nothing more um, to plaintiffs um, who are challenging? They have a great name. I, I want to find what was the name of the, the party? Um, oh, the like the National Coalition of Men or something like the that. National Coalition for Men. For Men. Um, not I'm not just I'm not just a client. <laughs> What's that? I'm not just the president. I'm also a client. Hair <laughs> <laughs> Club for Men. National Coalition for Men. Um, That's so funny. So they had brought a lawsuit challenging the um, constitutionality of the exclusion of women from the selective service. Um, and, you know, everyone agrees that the Supreme Court decided this exact question um, 39 years ago in Rosker versus Goldberg. Right. The question was whether circumstances and the Supreme Court's jurisprudence have both changed. And there are actually pretty good arguments, Bobby, that the answer to both questions is yes. Yeah. I mean, um, the question, the circumstances have changed. Uh, right. Rosker places a huge central emphasis on the idea that the draft relates to combat roles uh, or or to positions that could evolve into combat roles and that women at the time were not eligible for combat roles. Therefore, there was a effectively a bona fide occupational qualification for the distinction. That's not the case anymore, at least not to, not nearly to the same extent. Um, so that's that's a big part of it, right? Um, plus, the the number of women in the services is much higher than it was in 1981, um, relatedly. Um, but also the law, I mean, um, I, you know, I don't know if you agree with this, but when I teach equal protection, Bobby, I teach the VMI case, right? The Supreme Court decision in 1996 as a ratcheting up of the so-called intermediate scrutiny standard that like, you know, the Supreme Court says in 1976 that sex-based discrimination requires intermediate scrutiny. So the, um, the classification must be substantially related to an important governmental interest. Um, and there are a lot of cases in the late 70s and early 80s where the court applies that relatively softly, right? Rosker, um, Michael M. versus Superior Court about California's um, very one-sided statutory rape law. Um, and then, you know, we get VMI in 96 where the court strikes down um, the single sex nature of the Virginia Military Institute and where the court, where Justice Ginsburg's majority opinion talks about how the government needs, quote, an exceedingly persuasive justification, unquote. Which is not um, which is not the ordinary language one would use to describe the degree or calibration of the government's interest in true intermediate scrutiny. So everyone says VMI kind of is intermediate scrutiny with bite. Right. And so then the question is, you know, if there's at least a, you know, doesn't that suggest that Rosker at least needs to be reassessed? Maybe not overruled, right? Maybe you'd reach the same result applying the the tighter rational basis. Anyway, so the Fifth Circuit in a six-page per curiam opinion says, nah, nothing has changed. And Bobby, we are a strict stare decisis court, which means we never, ever depart from Supreme Court precedent if there's even a close argument that it's on point. To which I say, interesting, Fifth Circuit, I seem to recall an abortion case from Louisiana, where you actually uh, directly departed from a squarely on point, just decided Supreme Court precedent, because you believe the facts were different enough to justify departing. And oh, by the way, the Supreme Court just reversed you on that. Did any of the justices, I'm sorry, the judges of the Fifth Circuit who were in, in, was there any overlap between those two panels? No, although I think there was some en banc maneuvering in the Louisiana abortion case. So it's not like they weren't aware. I mean, come on, Bobby, the, they, the, a court of, judges on the Court of Appeals know which cases from their court go to the Supreme Court and what happens to them. I know, but I'm just saying that you only get to, you know, if you're not on the panel, you don't get to say what's said in the opinion. So, I, I think I think that um, I I do think in the opinion the the per curiam on this recent case the the draft case 
I don't think they actually join the issue on the fact that the underlying facts have changed or that VMI arguably ups to some degree, although although I think it's actually debatable whether it actually really has the effect of upping the level of scrutiny. I don't think they actually touch it. I think they try to have a, a completely bare stare decisis claim that says we just can't touch this rule. The Supreme Court has an on-point decision. Our hands are tied. I think it's completely fair to criticize them for not, for as in general, uh, maybe the circuit as a whole isn't always true to that. Probably, almost certainly no circuit's entirely true to that. Certainly not the Fifth Circuit. Um, I mean, it was, it was not, I mean, the decision read to me like a cop out. It was like we, you know, we're going to write a really short opinion. We're not even going to put someone's name on it. We're just going to say, Rosker, Rosker, we're not touching this. I, I have no problem with that because they're basically just kicking it upstairs and they're passing they're it along. No, because no, because this a six page opinion like this, the cert opposition writes itself. Like you know, the you know, the, yeah. But so does the petition. The petition says, look, they 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 disclaimed any authority to ever engage. Therefore, you can't wait for there to be the engaged opinion because they say they won't write one. Yeah, but that never works with the, I mean, that argument by itself doesn't work. I mean, the, you know, I've I, I've seen the Supreme Court turn away petitions in exactly that context. Yeah, but the the questions of moment. I, I think if there's a, if there's there are four votes that are interested in this issue, they'll take it. It's, it's incredibly important. They may not feel it's ripe yet, but I don't think that. But I don't think they can bury it by citing stare decisis and hiding behind a procurium. In any event, here's the more interesting question. Here's the much more interesting question. You and I understand, and we're willing to engage with the fact that DOD policy has shifted very dramatically since the 70s. Um, We understand that there is this nuance where Ginsburg got a majority to embrace the stronger verbiage, but not the formal shift. Do either of these produce a different outcome? I I don't think that the, the degree of scrutiny, first of all, I'm a skeptic about whether there's anything mathematical really happening when the court says, well, we're amping up. I, right. I think this is window dressing that comes in after the fact, not not the other way around. But at, le- at least when it comes to um, fine-grained distinctions like the, the with-bite scenarios. But the facts have definitely changed. And so whatever version of intermediate scrutiny is going on here, it's certainly possible for a, for a justice who wants to write the opinion that says that, that the equal protection is violated by the gender specific nature of the draft you could certainly write that opinion plausibly you could write the other opinion plausibly too uh, in a way that really wouldn't have been true i don't think it would have been plausible back in the 70s notwithstanding that a few justices dissented then i agree the, the only thing i would say bobby is is what's back back of rosker right is not just the slightly more deferential equal protection jurisprudence of that time but also deference to the military um and, and I'm I'm fascinated by what the current Supreme Court, which I think would share many of the same impulses about deference to the military, um, right, would do in a case where you have sort of a modern military deference case. Um, yeah. And I say all this because I'm actually in the middle of working on a brief um, <laughs> in the court of, on your mind. Uh, in the court of appeals for the armed forces about it's an equal protection issue. Um, where one of the questions is like, you know, what does military deference actually do to equal protection analysis? Does it actually change the standard of scrutiny or does it just sort of put a thumb on the government scale within the right, you know, within the sort of generally correct tier of scrutiny? Oh, that's so interesting. Well, you know, you know what I would say, it kind of depends on what's the issue, but I'd want to know, are we talking about factual deference? Are we talking about historical facts? Are we talking about predictive judgments that shade into policy? Um, I will say that you, I think some would look at this and say, whatever, VMI, the court was willing to reject the sort of the military inflected arguments in that context and require admission of women to VMI. I think the draft is different. And I do not think that the current court is is at all about to say that it's unconstitutional to have a male only draft. I think they probably with with lots of complications and caveats probably will sustain Rosker. Which is why they'll, which is why they'll deny cert. Exactly. Exactly. I think that's right. Um, all right. Well, I'm I'm getting tired oh, yeah. of time, so one we have a lightning first. round. One last, right. So we wanted to talk briefly about Judge Marrero's decision in the Vance case. Yes. Right? Yeah. Okay. So a long decision, but what are the key things we need to understand about it? Uh, other than so this is, we're not done. Is, yet. Right. I mean, this is what this is what um, the Supreme Court sent back to Marrero. Right. The court says no. Trump is not categorically immune. No, he can't. You know. Right. If he has more specific objections, let him make them. So Trump made him, and Marrero says, "No, go away." <laughs> there you go, and he did it quick. Good job, Marrero. 
Uh, the, the real question now is what does the second circuit do? Because the second circuit, I think, has two choices. Um, choice number one is to grant the application for a stay and expedite the crap out of the appeal, yeah. right? Like briefs due in the next two and a half weeks, argument in mid-September, yeah. you know, et cetera. Right. Um, and option number two is to deny the stay. Um, if, which, like, would, if you, which would quite materially change the facts on the ground, which makes me think they're almost certainly going to issue the stay. Except, so, you know, the, one of the requirements for a stay, and increasingly in the Supreme Court, the only requirement for a stay. <laughs> Probability um, of success on the merits? Right. And so if you really believe that these claims on remand are just empty and toothless, I don't know if you don't just deny the stay. I mean, yes, that puts pressure on the Supreme Court to follow suit. Right. So then the question replicates. So that's certainly possible. Right. So I think that in in most contexts, something like this, that the the balance of equities on the what's the uh, impact on the status quo and the irreparability of a change pretty strongly favors the stay. But you're right. If it seems if, if the panel that gets this gets wheeled out to looks at this and thinks this is going nowhere and it's going all the way up anyways. Let's get out of the way. The quickest way to expedite things would be to deny the stay. And then, of course, uh, the Trump team would go to the Supreme Court. Um, and maybe it, at that point, gets dragged out by a long briefing schedule with the stay. Yep. Okay. What else have we got? Uh, I think we we covered everything. Did you want to say anything about the, uh, the Senate Select Committee report and its thousands of pages of, of further... I mean, it's I'm, I'm just going to refer folks. So, you know, we could have spent refer the whole hour on rational it. security. Uh, no, I'm not, either the, either to rational, either to this week's episode of rational security or to the long post Ben Wittes wrote that he talked about a bit on rational security, where he explains just how important the new ver- the, the volume five is and just how radically inconsistent the meat of it is with the short, you know, page and a half statement that six of the Republican members of the committee issued, um, trying to sort of explain away what the committee actually found. There we go. Yeah, that's on Lawfare. That's very, very worth reading. And I think um, we covered... All right, all should, should, we do our, should, we, should we pivot to our, our, our frivolous discussion of 80s soundtracks again? Yeah, so we had some great... Thanks to all the listeners who sent in these great ideas. There was a lot of uniformity of, of views on um, all our different subcategories. Uh, I'll queue I'll queue up some of that so I can share it um, while we're talking. Steve, what what eighties soundtracks stand out to you as your particular favorites? So again, I mean, I suggested when we when we framed this, I suggested there were three categories, right? There was the pure score soundtrack, uh-huh. um, right? There was the original music soundtrack, and then there was the sort of um, existing music used for the movie soundtrack, right? As the three big categories, right? And you tried to argue there was a fourth category where the movie was the music. I, I'm going to put that in the second category where it's original music, original songs, and not just score, right, for the movie. Okay, okay. Um, so. so I want to start with the easy, what I think is the easiest category, which is scores. All right. Um, and I have um, two nominations for the best score of the 1980s. Fire. Ready? Yeah. Um, nomination number one is speaking of volume five. Ah, you like what I did there? Um, <laughs> Empire, Empire Strikes Back. Now, why distinguish it from, say, other John Williams soundtracks of the era? I mean, we could have a whole Imperial show. March. The Imperial March is so great. And people don't realize it's not in the original, it's not, not in, in a new hope. Not in four. Um, and I think Yoda's theme is also not in four, right? Um, I, would, I would think not. Uh, the Imperial March is one of the all-time great uh, themes. Full stop for for movies. Let's see. Um, but also, wait the the um, um, the end the, the end title to episode five is actually really good when they're on the medical frigate. Um, I actually think that's an underrated part of the of the Star Wars. Okay. Score it's got, it's got both elements of the sort of the wistfulness, but also a little bit of hopefulness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's so that's my first nomination. My second nomination is ET. Da, na, 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 na. Was that also John Williams? That was also John Williams. Yeah, it's got to be. I mean, basically, <laughs> anything that was right. a smash hit. It's a John Williams movie. Um, what about what about Raiders? I thought the John the the Raiders theme is is as about as iconic as anything. 
Yeah. Okay. Raiders. Um. I got now. W- would Amadeus count as score? Well, I mean, it's, it's I think that's in, that's in the category of of taking existing songs, ex- yeah. existing performances, and just weaving them effectively in. Yeah. All right. So, so, so Raiders. All right. So Raiders, ET, and Empire are our big three in this category. I, I can live. Well, with should that. we branch out? There should almost be like the non-John Williams category. So, like Dakota had had tweeted at us about Last Temptation of Christ, which has a Peter Gabriel soundtrack, and a, a few people had mentioned that. Um, I'm scanning to see some of the other score-specific responses we got. Um, okay, pivoting to uh, oh, uh, there's some Vangelis stuff, Blade Runner. Tron. So Tron actually, the, Tron was 70s, wasn't it? Late 70s. Was it? Yeah, I'm almost positive. Um, oh, uh, Tron is 1982. Dang, shoot. Well, I was little. I was little. Um, there were a number of votes for Blues Brothers. There's some that, That's pretty strong in the musically focused movie category. I think I'd mentioned Purple Rain. Which is fire is good. Um, purple, purple Rain, obviously. Yeah. I mean, purple, Rain, purple Rain is just a category unto itself. Yes, it really was. I mean, the, that's an amazing – that was – to me, that I know a lot of people would disagree with this, but to me, that was peak uh, powers for Prince. Um, well, what about, what about, what about, what about uh, in the time stuff? The more yeah. in the time stuff, which I don't think ends up. Actually, I don't know if it's even on this the soundtrack. If that was maybe done separately on his own albums, but those were great songs too. What about Top Gun? Uh, Top Gun got some love, and rightly so. It's a great collection, a, a very eighties montage, picking up one of my favorite sub themes of soundtracks: Kenny Loggins related soundtracks. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, there's he had such a good string of them. Of course, he's got. Uh, Footloose, Footloose is a great soundtrack. It's got some real dogs on it, but it's also got some great songs. Right, so, now, so, wait, so, so now we're into the category of now we're in the category of soundtracks with songs, right? Right, right. Which come from a variety of artists that are just deployed effectively. Um, so, so, now, so you have to add "Say Anything," "Pretty in Pink," um, what uh, "Fast Times at Ridgemont High." I mean, like this is quite a rich category. Well, so you know. To one other Kenny Loggins one, people forget about Caddyshack, which of course had a great use of it. I don't think Kenny's. Well, go ahead. St. Almost Fire. <laughs> you know, I can't decide whether I despise. Or I love the movie. It's very like you know from childhood or from teenage years. But um, I think it's John Parr who sings the theme song. You know, I could be a man in motion. Yeah. Uh, it's it's very eighties in its aesthetic. Um, I'm not sure I like that song. We laughed until we had oh, to cry. One. Oh, that one. Yeah, th- those two were like the iconic uh, Santa Most Fire ones. Oh, my favorites. All right, can I put it up? Um, so also in the 80s soundtrack, although this is, I mean, this may go in the Purple Rain category, um, Fame. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, I, I think that's completely legit. Great song. It's all original music. Um. Who did the – you got me thinking back on kind of blends. Top Gun has both popular songs, especially the Kenny Loggins song. But and it also soundtrack. has – what's that? Score. Score. Harold Faltermeyer. All right, so there's a whole Harold Faltermeyer subcategory, especially – Cobb. Cobb. <laughs> yeah, uh, Eddie Murphy. And then, yeah. <laughs> Uh, we could probably have a whole Eddie Murphy movie uh, music. Yeah, well, you know what? Coming to America, greatest movie ever made. Not a great soundtrack. <laughs> Sexual chocolate. <laughs> Sexual chocolate. Oh, man. What about um, – does 48 Hours have some good stuff in it? I, I wouldn't be surprised. I need to go back and look. I wouldn't be surprised if there's some good, uh, good stuff in that soundtrack. But maybe not. Now that I'm thinking about it, maybe his other but, movies. But, really but, as I think about previous, I, I really think that these are all sort of running behind the clear best compilation soundtrack, um, which is the Big Chill. So obviously that gets a lot of love. There, there are haters out there as well. I know. Well, because the movie is so mediocre. Yeah. So for for a genre soundtrack, though, it's it's good. It's you know. Well, it's- and I, and I, just, I mean, it, it, it's near and dear to my heart because like I grew up listening to that album. You know that that uh, tape. In our car, we just played yeah. it over and over again on road trips. Yeah, I, I had a similar experience with it when it, it was it was wonderful. It introduced me to a lot of, of music from that generation that I 
some of those songs I didn't know, some of those artists. And of course, I love that stuff. Now we listen to it. We listen to a lot of, of you can drop that in as a seed for Pandora and keep that going for a while. Oh, um, nobody nominated Eddie and the Cruisers. That's too bad. You know, on the uh, dark side was, was a great song. It was a great song. John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band uh, providing the vocals for Eddie and the Cruisers. Um, we should probably stop there because I'm supposed to be meeting with one of my 1L advisees. In I, I, put, I put in one last. So we haven't talked about James Horner at all. And I want to put in one honorary mention in the score category for Star Trek 2. Oh, very good. Yeah, that actually got some love in, in the Twitter feed as well. And I'm down with anything that complements Star Trek 2 because as we all understand, it was the it was the pinnacle moment of all Star Trek. I mean, just full stop. I mean, I, I, you know, I, we can fight about whether there have been better individual episodes, but there's, you know, in, in the ranking, like for all the fighting over the ranking of Star Wars movies, like ranking of Star Trek movies, anyone who has any movie other than Star Trek II first is wrong. I, I, I com- couldn't agree more. We are, we are dead lockstep on that. Um, I'm sure many of our listeners feel that uh, minutes seem like days and <laughs> seconds seem like minutes when listening to us. Uh, so in honor of Star Trek 2, we should probably wrap it there. There? What if they went nowhere? Then this will be your big chance to get away from it all. <laughs> we should record in the mornings more often. We're less tired and more loopy. Totally. Um, all right. On that note, and by the way, did you see that Obama stole my line? Uh, you'll have to be more specific than that. At the end of his convention speech, he said, stay safe. I was like, come on, man. I was there first. <laughs> I'm kidding, by the way. I don't. I'm sure. To. I'm sure Barack is a listener. You know, by the yeah. way, just to you listeners may find this interesting, the numbers have really gone up. We're now getting about twelve thousand downloads a week. Most wow, people that, must really be bored. Most of that probably is not being listened to, but hey, it's all we can measure. So, thank you for being a listener. We appreciate it. Seriously, and you know, send us more ideas for frivolity and for other things you'd like us to talk about. Um, he is at Bobby Chesney. I am at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, yeah, as as President Obama said, stay safe out there. Adios.